0: Welcome to COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno, presenting information from various sources about the COVID-19 pandemic from public health policy and cultural perspectives. We will be sharing international accounts from policy, public health response, and even personal experiences firsthand about living in this era of COVID-19. Today I wanted to tell you about our new organization. It is a 501c3 nonprofit organization in Southern California. It's called the Autoimmune Community Institute. We're dedicated to health equity in autoimmune disease research, policy, and support for the communities of color, the underrepresented communities out there that don't often see themselves in disease community events, for example, and they don't see their face, a face like theirs, in their community. And we are dedicated to community-based participatory research. We're dedicated to serving the community, for example, cooling programs, and also delivery services during the COVID-19 pandemic. For example, the immunocompromised community not being able to go out into public spaces due to disability or immunocompromised status from disease-modifying drugs. And we provide delivery services of essential goods, food, masks, protective gear, hand sanitizer, and so on to these communities. So please consider a donation to the Autoimmune Community Institute. You can find us at ACI, as in Autoimmune Community Institute, acicommunity.org. So welcome to this episode of COVID-19, Public Health Policy and Culture. Today, we're going to be talking about some of the health disparities that are out there in terms of testing for covid and the data quality out there as well so today we're speaking with jorge caballero and he is from stanford medical school he's a clinical instructor of anesthesia and he's a co-founder of coders against covid so welcome jorge
1: thank you very much for having me
0: thank you so much for being here with us today so please tell us a little bit more about you
1: well um Thanks again for you know for taking the time. Um, as you mentioned, I'm a clinical instructor of anesthesia. I uh, prior to the the pandemic, I was practicing uh, anesthesia uh, about uh, once or twice a week. And the rest of my the rest of my time, I was actually spending, um, uh, you know, spending working on uh, you know working from home and really being a, a stay-at-home dad. But prior to that, I've got I spent uh, over a decade actually working on on health data and built out uh, data platforms uh, on a national level, including uh, including um, a, a at the time was a one of a kind uh, data lake that included uh, medical claims data uh, from every major insurer uh, and included Medicare and Medicaid claims data. Um, we you know leveraged that data to to build out. Uh, uh, metrics for uh, for healthcare quality and uh, and all of the um, and all of the processes that, that go go into that. Um, beyond that, I you know I'm i have really been focused on, on health disparities for, for quite some time. My research uh, leading uh, leading up to uh, to to this point um, has has uh, has involved using big data. Uh, to 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 both surface and then also to to try to uh try to measure progress toward um you know mitigating the uh, mitigating health disparities in a, in a clinical setting uh and and that's really where uh where i think that the the response uh at every level uh in from national to state to to county to 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 neighborhood level you know where we can we can we can stand to do a lot more uh to to just to, to try to understand where the where the uh, the data gaps are, uh, which I I I believe will uh, will help us inform um, uh, help us inform the the actual public health uh, initiatives and the response uh, efforts that uh, you know that that we that we undertake moving forward.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you for being here today. I really appreciate this conversation, Uh, definitely kind of speaking my language in terms of public health, health IT, GIS even, and data analytics. Yeah, so I'm really a big GIS fan as well. So um, tell us a little bit more about Coders Against COVID.
1: Absolutely. So Coders Against COVID is an all-volunteer group that really came together uh, in um, mid-March to 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 summarize how how we all came together, it really was a a reaction to uh, to the uh, to the obvious need for uh, for data around uh, where to get tested and uh, and and how to get there essentially. So we built out uh, we uh, we meaning myself and and my co-founder Andrew Camendo, uh recruited a team of of software developers from across the country uh, to to source and to and to publish the nation's first uh, uh, testing location directory, uh, we were able to to do that fairly quickly. We started off with, you know, with uh, with the FDA's EUA uh, not EUA list at the time. It was the FDA's uh, policy uh, guidance or approval uh, that uh, that allowed certain labs across the country to to perform their own. Uh, in-house testing uh and it was you know it was uh right after the uh you know the CDC sort of acknowledged that, you know that that uh, they would benefit from you know from external help and uh using you know using my own context my own understanding of the of the system and the amazing team of developers that uh, we you know that we partnered with uh we were able to to put together a comprehensive list fairly quickly uh, we eventually joined forces with with a group called GIS core and they've you know they do amazing work in pretty much every response uh every emergency response uh, uh around the country uh they're folks that are you know do tireless you know, they just are uh do do a lot of work they're you know t- thankless work in many cases but um but they're always there and uh i I feel fortunate to, to have uh crossed paths with them and now to to be partnered with them. Uh, Beyond the actual testing location directory, we launched a site called uh, FindCovetesting.com. completely free, Uh, it's a searchable map that that is uh, meant for the general public to to be able to find uh, testing locations around them. Um, We we include data such as what kind of tests are available, antibodies, antigen, uh, and um, PCR. Uh, whether a referral is 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 required or not, um, and uh, and lots of additional information beyond that, um, the the data itself is actually being used not just on findcovatesting.com, but um, but it's it's a it's one of the sources that uh, that feed uh, Google Maps and Google Search. Um, it's also used by uh, as a, as a source, the primary source now by the SF Chronicle and a few other. Uh, and a few other outlets. And for well over, I mean, since late March, it's actually been the authoritative data source of testing location data for, uh, for FEMA, HHS, CDC, essentially the entire federal uh, response effort. Uh, since May, since the transition from uh, of authority from, from the federal to the state um, uh, governments happened, uh, we've, uh, we've become the authoritative data source for a number of key states, including California, Texas, um, Massachusetts, uh, and we, you know, we are also the, you know, the, the authority source resource for the, for LA County Department of Public Health, we have an ongoing relationship with them. Uh, uh, and, uh, and a few, you know, and a few key other uh, key other areas, but we do cover the entire country uh, and provide that service for free as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like yeah. to
0: just mention some of the features of the website. So I'm taking a look here at findcovidtesting.com. You've got some really great um, options or columns of data <laughs> that's available here. So whether an appointment's required, pre-evaluation, types of screening, um, types of testing, molecular-based or like rapid testing, antibodies, collecting samples, and so on. And then there's even this assessment to check your sy- your symptoms, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, and so you, you actually hit on a on a lot of the uh, a lot of the key aspects of the of the data itself as well. Um, you know, as much as you know, we're proud of the of the site. It really is just a it is just a portal into the uh, into the into the data. The, the key thing about the site for us is that it allows us an opportunity to actually get feedback from the public. Um, we we source our data. Uh, through a combination of uh, direct relationships that we developed uh, over months with uh, you know with testing location operators uh, including um, folks like Walgreens Walmart uh, state and local governments um, but at the end of the day because of the because of the nature of the uh, of the data the the dynamism of, of the of the details um, the public is really a great uh, of fact checker Uh, and and so we we uh, appreciate that you're you know that you're mentioning this uh resource uh and primarily to to encourage folks if nothing else just go on the site and 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 uh, sort of kick the tires and if they notice anything that's changed or different if we're missing something we would love to hear about it um and uh and that's actually a great segue into why we think that you know that community-based testing and uh is important and why the the and and dovetails into the into this issue of health disparities Mm -hmm. uh, and access to you know access to testing and access to care um so yeah thanks for bringing that up
0: Mm -hmm, definitely so yeah i like that you're now mentioning this um topic of health disparities in data so um one of my biggest pet peeves in quantitative data analysis is this sense of objectivity, this un- there's no mm. need to question the data. There's no need to question mm. the context of data. And unfortunately, that's never really the case. So we can see you know, who's actually working with the data, who controls the data, who is actually involved in the process of data, who is the data out there to serve, and so on. And then we're starting to see disparities as a result of this actual subjectivity of quantitative data. And so I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about the health disparities that you're seeing in terms of like fine COVID testing sites, for example, mm-hmm. testing availability, and then some of the other factors that are um, related to health disparities.
1: How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot there, and you know if we just start with the with the testing location data in and of itself, um, something that you know something that uh, that isn't um, that I would say that isn't well known is, and and that's partly our you know our fault and uh, and why it's helpful to actually uh, you know be on uh, on uh, on, a, on a podcast like this um, because what something that people don't know is how quickly sort of, uh, how quickly testing locations sort of come and go uh, and especially nowadays there's there's a movement towards pop-up sites those pop-up sites tend to be primarily in 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 uh, communities of color. Uh, or immigrant communities, or in rural areas, um, and one of the, you know, one of the, uh, you know, one of the drawbacks of of having a large um, a large company be the sort of the authoritative source, and as you know, we we you know we Google's actually done a lot for you know for our own efforts. To, this is all volunteer, so uh, they've provided credits as, as as AWS and that sort of thing. Um, one of the ongoing topics of conversation with them is is the frequency with which they update their data sets. Uh, mm-hmm. these pop-up sites often come and go within 24 hours. And um, and we're working with them, but right now their you know their schedule, last time we spoke uh, with them, their update schedule was every three days. It's very, very easy to you know to to have these pop-up sites come and go without anybody knowing about it. And if they're the primary mm-hmm. source of, you know, sort of the, the primary gateway, then there's this uh there's this uh you know this this back back feedback back, uh, uh this bad loop uh you know feedback cycle where people don't know about these sites uh because the data's not out there that you know that then uh public health officials feel like there isn't a demand for it uh and don't put the site out there. And so we you know we find ourselves in a situation now where um where as California, for example, is realizing that they have this amazingly low positivity rate, uh, it doesn't seem to line up with you know these surging case numbers that are you know that are all of a sudden showing up in uh, not just in in tests finally, but also uh, are showing up in hospital and and starting increasingly starting to show up in. Uh, in uh, mortality rates as well, and and all of that to say that um, that yes, indeed, the data is uh, is um, it starts off objective, but the but it's when it comes to to issues of health disparities and and issues of race and ethnicity, um, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you were getting at, but but the the, the moment there's like a kernel of understanding, um, there's a tendency. Uh, for that insight to sort of be blown out of proportion and to be overly generalized, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and, a, and a and a and a need for uh, for uh, for all of us to, to to keep checking back on the data on a regular basis and to and, and to uh, reevaluate our um, our our prior conclusions, uh, gut check our assumptions, and and to um, you know, to really you know think critically about uh, about the next steps um, beyond the actual testing location data. There's actually the data that's coming out of the tests as well. Uh, some, another thing, another thing that uh, you know that's top of mind for me and has been top of mind for quite some time is is how little we actually do understand about the uh, about the the breadth and scope of the of the health disparities across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently, there was an article from New York uh, by the New York Times that literally required the New York Times to sue the federal government to get access to case-level uh, case data yeah. with, uh, with uh, race and ethnicity uh, included. Mm-hmm. And the reason that's, that's meaningful, you know, there were headlines and there were stories around that. The thing that stood out to me the most was that we only have race and complete race and ethnicity data uh, for 25% of all the cases reported to the CDC at this point. Wow. Just imagine that, like, we are talking about major policy uh, decisions at every level of government. We're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars, uh, you know, both in real real money and also in, in, you know, in future money in terms of the debt that we're incurring as a country that, you know, that's based on very, very limited information about uh you know about uh about communities of color and um and how you know we and how we can best serve um you know how we can best serve our entire uh, si- you know uh citizenry not just you know not just those that happen to be in the you know in the right zip code to you know to be counted so to speak mm-hmm. um yeah
0: yeah so definitely like some of the disparities or some of the subjectivity of the perceived objectivity of data I refer to so many things, but some of the things you mentioned, yeah. like this this perception that the data is complete, first of all, mm-hmm. that the data has all the information that we need as policymakers, as policy leaders to, to direct change, and knowing that only 25% of that data is actually complete in the sense of health equity, health disparities, that's a huge one. And then also, like, when we look at COVID testing sites, like, you know, I can see a news article or something saying, well, obviously testing is available widely because, you know, here's a map that shows you all these sites. But then when you start to think about where those sites are located and like you mentioned, some of the scheduling and then even uh, the language needs and finding that maybe there is no bus stop, there's no public transportation, there's Mm -hmm. no way for a lot of people to actually get to those sites. So it doesn't mean that the site is actually accessible to people just because it's
1: Absolutely. And, um, and yeah, I mean, if you look at a map, you're going to see lots, of, you know, lots of pins on a map and it's going to look really great. What, mm-hmm. what is lost, you know, what is last lost in that snapshot is the, uh, the relative delay in, uh, in those pins being placed in, uh, in places that were even remotely accessible to communities of color, mm-hmm. uh, first of all. And then, uh, beyond that, there are, um, there's also the boots on the ground. Is this, is this a place where I can get diagnosed? Uh, on May 3rd, there was a, if you look at our data set historically, you're, you're gonna see that on May 3rd, about uh, 20, around 2000, don't quote me the exact number, but it was something like 2,120 something uh, locations lit up across the country.
0: On mm-hmm.
1: uh, Paper looks great. Mm-hmm. In reality, those were all the Quest patient service centers. And they only offer antibody testing, mm. so when you when you look at a map, if you subtract out uh, if you subtract out the antibody testing uh, the antibody only testing sites you 're going to find that there are still major what I call testing deserts out in the you know out in the country in mm. in uh, in three sort of big buckets of uh, of communities, one is obviously communities of color, two are um our uh our rural communities and the third it 's sort of like it 's a little bit of it 's not it 's agricultural communities mm-hmm. um and we we in some cases we think of them as rural automatically but they're you know they 're sort of a hybrid of, of both uh and and those are the areas where you just see either no access because there 's no public transportation or you or no access because it 's not accessible during a yeah, you, know, you know they work long, tireless hours, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's just not accessible during you know during the time that they're available. And then on top of that, you layer on uh, you layer on uh, additional uh, factors like administrative burden or paperwork uh, to register for testing. In some cases, you're required to uh, to create an account uh, and to fill out a bunch of information, and um, and that adds an, another uh, barrier to entry. Uh, as well, uh, in in California, there is uh, you know there's there's a fear of of government in the sense that there are many immigrant communities, some including um, you know, multi generational households that that are. Uh, where some of the, you know, some of the members in the ho- of the household may not have, uh, may not be here in the U.S. legally, and and so you end up with an entire household choosing not to get tested or or afraid of getting tested out of fear of being exposed. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have something that seems as trivial as an online registration form that requires creating an account, well, you know, many of us may just think of this as, oh, well, of course you need an account. I mean, how else are you going to get your results? But but that's a that is that becomes a barrier for you know for for, for folks in certain communities and, and the mistrust of government is, is not unique to you know to that particular setting. Um, you know we, we don't you know we don't have to go into sort of the reasons for that, but we just need to acknowledge that that there are uh, important cultural considerations that you know that that come into play the moment that you know that we think about a testing strategy uh, that serves uh, that serves everyone. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I hate to even imagine like someone actually going through the paperwork, completing it, and then getting to a site that no longer exists. You know?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And then obviously we, you know, now we're hearing more about the delays in uh, in, uh, in, testing, uh, in in testing and getting results from uh, from testing. Something that is not discussed in that context as well is the fact that there are families that you know we may be able to now reach them. Uh, the, you know these households the, the testing strategies have gotten better in California they are uh, markedly better in the last week and a half um, there 's been a, a change in, in in leadership at the uh, testing increasing task force and uh, and there 's been some new thinking infused into that and and we 're starting to see um, we 're we're starting i 'm starting to see some positive changes in the data uh, and i 'll just leave it at that but there 's still this issue of of what do you do when you're waiting around? What do you, I mean, a lot of these families are living paycheck to paycheck and Mm -hmm. we can't lose sight of the fact that, you know, it goes, uh, there's, the testing is just step one to you know, on this journey. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and we, and the data, you know, the, the data along each step of the, of the journey speaks to gaps in our understanding and gaps in our strategy, Mm -hmm. uh, at the, Testing location level, where you know where our work has primarily focused, um, you know to date, uh, we saw the the gap in the strategy in the data. We saw that there weren't enough testing sites where they needed to be, and then when they when we put is on the map they were not useful testing sites. They were not functionally there mm-hmm. for, for the purposes of diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Now in the we're also seeing in the results where in the actual, who's actually getting tested, who's actually getting, you know, uh, uh who, who are we actually uh, understanding? We we don't have uh full demographic information for 75% of the you know, for, for 70% of those samples, mm-hmm. um, that'll change, uh, you know, uh, on August 1st, but we've gone this entire time without capturing uh, all of that information. Mm-hmm. Now, the next step in that journey is, you know, sa- uh, you know, realistically, some of those folks are going to get sick enough to end up in the hospital, mm-hmm. which brings us to where we are today in the, you know, sort of the controversy du jour, which is, you know, the transition from a CDC-based reporting system to a third-party reporting system. It's mm-hmm. sort of the data taking a detour. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and the, the the pros and cons of of creating a uh, a dedicated data service, uh, you know, are, are merit an entire conversation in and of itself. So I'd rather not talk about that, but really just focus on what that means from, from a data gap and knowledge gap standpoint. And I want to point out that the, uh, up until uh, this uh, handover of the, of the data, uh, of the hospitalization data responsibilities, mm-hmm. the CDC was actually collecting case level data with full demographic information from hospitals. Grant, mm-hmm. so they, were, they were getting that, that information on a weekly basis. The, uh, the, uh, the, the, the thing that we've gained in this switch is daily reporting. And uh, an ICU uh, bed capacity. What we've mm-hmm. lost is full demographic information, case-level data, uh, and, and to, to the point of our conversation, um, we we no longer have anything but age bins. So we we just get a on a daily basis we get a, and in, in the number of patients in it in in one of ten age buckets. Mm-hmm. That's it. And previously we had for every patient we had their age their gender their race ethnicity uh and um you know and and then and then some uh, you know some some additional uh information but but we've we're actually taking a step backwards mm-hmm. from you know from where we were mm-hmm. and this is you know these are you know these sort of observations are 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 where i feel uh as a as a health data professional i, I Yeah, where I raise my hand, I'm like, here. There's a problem here that you may want to address now, Mm -hmm. because it'll be a problem um, when we hand over the data to, you know, to to public health officials, uh, and they suddenly feel like they no longer have full visibility, um, which is, you know, something that, um, you know, that we are uh, constantly struggling with in this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, one of the big reasons why we find ourselves sort of uh, reversing course or, or giving off the impression that we, you know, to the public that we are, uh, you know, that we're going back and forth on policy. It's not that we're going back and forth on policy, it's that, um, is that the the lack of national strategy uh, in terms of testing and the response go all the way down to the data. And right. as, as, you know, as the data, uh, as the heterogeneity, heterogeneity of the data uh, you know, gets, uh, it gets messier, it gets worse. Uh, so does the, uh, so does the ability of public health officials to actually make use of the data in a meaningful way.
0: Yeah, and it's definitely such a shame that reportable conditions has basically lost its meaning, you know, that yeah. public health no longer has that role in terms of this pandemic, and it's, it's just something else. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, I,
0: yeah, so, uh,
1: don't get me started.
0: <laughs> right? So I'm curious to know, yeah. like, In terms of the data that's now available, coming from the White House, for example, Health and Human Services, or wherever it's coming from now, um, are you still getting that location-based data? Like, at what granularity are you seeing location information in terms of positive testing? And then maybe Mm. even, like, the address? Are you getting address of actual people getting tested? Or are you getting, like, contact tracing insights?
1: Got it. Yeah, so that's actually a really good question. I'm really glad you asked that. at the level of publicly available data, we've never had uh, data that we can actually use to re-identify someone. Mm-hmm. I just want to make, make that clear. Like nobody, uh, I, I actually have con- another one of my concerns about you know going to a third party uh, contractor is that the CDC has earned my vote of confidence in terms of being able to manage uh, and secure patient health information for decades. I can't say that for you know for any third party contractor quite frankly yeah um so uh you know to that point i just want to do i do want to clarify that outside of the c d c nobody has had case level data and public and local public health officials nobody's had identifiable uh data um that uh, you know that uh, shouldn't have it now uh beyond that uh what we you know what we are collecting varies from, from location to location, uh, and that's been um, you know that's been a reflection of again a lack of a uh, of a national strat- data you know national strategy period and certainly a lack of a national data strategy. Uh, to your you know to your you know to your to your question, I, I think I I hope I'm answering your question. The the data itself mm-hmm. has varied a lot over time. Like what we get, what we get, and what we collect is is very different from location to location. The granularity varies from location to location. In uh, places like uh, Massachusetts, Massachusetts was um, was a little slow in terms of figuring out what they were going to do initially. Um, and, but once they figured out what they were what they were going to do, they had a plan and they executed the plan, and they're looking pretty right now. Um, that is reflected in their data. You look at their at their state level data. This at the state level, you can get a breakdown on a weekly basis of uh, the number of cases uh, for a uh, down to the township level, and uh, and some towns that have a big enough population um, will then supplement that and make and uh, make uh, either zip code or neighborhood level data available. Mm-hmm. So that's a you know. The the quality of the data that's publicly available is a reflection of the quality of the responses is, is been my sort of general theme. New York, very similar, right? I mean the, the the level of granularity that's available at the highest levels, publicly available through the highest levels, meaning at the state level, um, is a, is again a reflection of the the full data stack, the full information flow. The fact that they're able to to, to feel confident. Putting their name behind, you know, that the governors are able to put their names behind that, is uh, speaks volumes of what they believe they are seeing in the data itself, right? And and how much they trust everything that flows up to them, mm-hmm. um, and rightfully so. Places, you know, I don't want to I don't want to single out any particular state because pretty much almost all states suffer from you know from some uh, data integrity issue or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, And so the things that we see are inconsistencies in the granularity of the data. Some you know some states will have um, will have very granular data for some locales but not others. Uh, some will just sort of throw their arms up in the air and say, "You know what? we're not even going to bother." Uh, and they will just report at a very high level and you know and if you want more detailed information, you have to go fishing for it. Um, as time goes on and the number of cases uh, regrettably increases, so does the, you have this uh, decreased concern over uh, patient privacy and re-identification just because there are more patients to sort of, or people to put into the, into each bin. Um, As a result, we have access to more granular data if we, if we go uh, county to county in in certain parts of the country. Mm -hmm. Um, But this long-winded answer is a reflection of just how heterogeneous the availability of data is mm-hmm. and, and how we still have a really, really long way to go to actually get a, a clear and complete and consistent picture across the country.
0: How does this work now in terms of being able to contact trace individuals? So um, oh, wow. when I think about this on firsthand or on for, at the first time, I think this is pretty Simple to understand, but now I'm a little confused in terms of zooming in here and thinking about this workflow, this process of the data coming in. So, is the data coming directly to um, HHS or wherever from the clinic from the testing sites? So, um, Mm. reportable data is not going to public health until after it goes to the feds. Is that how this works? And then, like, at what point? Does the public health agency have the ability, or the data, or awareness, um, the knowledge to call people and do something like contact tracing? At, at what point in this flow is that happening?
1: Yeah. yeah. So let's let's unpack this because there are two, uh, you know, two different data pipelines that we're talking about here. One is the hospital data pipeline, and that one is largely uh, electronic and 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 the shift from CDC to third-party reporting. Uh, speak it, when we talk about that. We're talking about hospital-based reporting. Okay. Now, when we talk about uh, most everything else, uh, there are actually two pipelines. So, for the testing piece of it, uh, if we if we focus on just the testing uh, counts, there are two uh, two pipelines in most cases for labs. There. Be, uh, by virtue of, of of language in the care law, in the CARES uh, Act rather, mm-hmm. uh, there is a mandate that uh, that labs report uh, that, that labs report all tests, all diagnostic. Let me rephrase that. All diagnostic tests to the CDC slash HHS, negative or positive. So mm-hmm. if you hear anybody saying, "Well, we're not reporting all the all the negatives, or we're getting an incomplete picture," that is patently illegal <laughs> mm-hmm. so uh you know so that is a a a piece out there that you know i want to dispel that myth there by law there is no there are no tests that should be counted that are not being counted the second thing is uh, so that's one path one pipeline the other pipeline actually does go to uh to local public health officials and uh in places like uh, places like California, depending on where you are, um, like if you're in the LA County Department of Public Health jurisdiction, you know there are resources available to you know for for electronic lab reporting straight to them. Um, but even that varies uh, varies across the country. In some cases, local public health officials will not have the infrastructure, the technical infrastructure to actually uh, uh, even receive that information, which is why you hear stories about faxes and all these other things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So in those settings, what tends to happen, and again, this is there are so many variations of this, but what tends to happen, is that the electronic lab reporting will flow through the state, and then the state will funnel data back to the local uh, public health officials, or they will, uh, or they will have local, state, or local mandates that will require the labs to generate a paper report for for local officials, and then to submit the rest to to, to the state. And then there's a lot of negotiation that goes around uh, that, that that that's involved in that, because obviously uh, the labs don't want to have to report out to Four or five different entities. Uh, and, in, and the CDC and HHS has, has tried to work uh, with with those situations by allowing some amount of flexibility in their language uh, by specifically saying that if you are reporting to the state and the state is then reporting to CDC, then there's no need to, to, to for both of you to report to the CDC if that if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but the the path of the, you know from from the data source to the cdc is uh is uh is also subject to to variation and subject to uh you know to to just temporal change as well uh and my understanding based on the information that's publicly available is that the intent the goal is to eventually fold in testing uh testing data into this um into this uh, third party platform uh, I have yet to see any actual documentation that, you know, that uh, lays out the process by which that would happen beyond some high-level schematic uh, that's publicly available through the CDC. But um, but beyond that, it's not, uh, I can't comment beyond that because it's not really clear to me exactly what the plan is from a data pipeline standpoint. Um,
0: yeah, this is probably more detailed than our
1: average. Yeah.
0: <laughs> customer, but I just had to add. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's very much in the weeds, but you ask your questions, because at the end of the day, here's where, here's where it matters. So let's zoom out just a little bit. Why does this matter? Because if you are, um, if you are me, Jorge Caballero, and you happen uh, you know say that uh, yeah, I moved to LA, I can go get tested at, uh, in Long Beach, and that same day, I can go get tested in, uh, in downtown LA. I am now two people, according to everyone involved. And that's where it's important to follow the data, because if I test positive in one but not the other, who's supposed to follow me? And and the answer is like none of the so for all these rhetorical questions, there is no there is no answer like there, there isn't a clear answer. Mm-hmm. So who's supposed to actually which so uh, so L.A. County uh, so L.A. Downtown uh, is uh, under L.A. County jurisdiction. Long Beach has its own jurisdiction that reports up to L.A. County, but they are autonomous. Yeah. Now I can go visit my father-in-law in you know, another part of Southern uh, of, of, California and uh, go get tested there. That's a different jurisdiction. So the, the issue you know starts getting magnified the moment that you start factoring all of these things in. And then when you start layering on things like pooled testing. Pool testing desperately need it, absolutely need this, but we haven't thought about the data implications. Mm-hmm. What happens when there is a pool testing program for students and teachers, and independently, you know, there's a, a pool testing like there's just like either pooled or regular testing that is happening uh, because the student is also in um, in a. In in a sports club or in, or in an after school program, and they require their own testing. Mm-hmm.
0: Can you explain pool testing really quickly?
1: Oh yeah, sure. So pool testing is is is, is uh, literally taking up to four samples from four different people, uh, mixing them together, and then running the test uh, in the, from that uh, combined sample. And the reason to do that is if you're trying to uh, just to to minimize the consumption of testing resources, uh, if you're short on personnel, um, or if you, you know, if you want to sort of hurry up the process, uh, and, 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 and free up some capacity, the, the strategy at the, at the lab level is you, you combine the four, you run it once. If it tests positive, then you, you, you still have enough of a sample from the individual sample, from the individuals to run each one of those samples again and figure out which ones actually contributed to that positive result. Mm-hmm. So that's pool testing in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. That takes time. That takes coordination. It's fine. To, it's easy to do if, if all you care about is, is the information sort of flowing across a single uh, lab uh, in a single jurisdiction. But the moment that you have other stakeholders involved like multiple counties or or multiple uh reasons for testing, um like an employer wanting a test and then a uh an after school program wanting the test as well, you run into problems. What happens when one of those pool tests comes back positive and the other one doesn't? Mm-hmm. Who knows at what point, how long is the turnover how how quickly are they gonna turn you know turn around results? Those are the you know, sort of examples of questions of that are that are now sort of evolving from where we are today, um, and as we you know as we think about what are we going to do uh, as we try uh, you know, we're going back to the drawing board. It's not really clear to me that that our plan as we you know uh, take a second stab at, at reopening in, in in the future is any different than what we you know what we currently have now. At least from speaking from a data standpoint. Uh, from a public health standpoint, I, I really do prefer to defer to, you know, to boots on the ground public health officials because they they know what's best for their particular community, and uh, and uh, that would be a great question for them. I I would love to you know to engage them in that sort of a conversation, uh, in the sort of the forum.
0: Yeah, I'm sure you'll receive varying answers, but
1: yeah, but those are all informative, right?
0: For sure, definitely. So as we probably should wind up this uh, conversation for the podcast. Could you tell us a little bit more about your message at this time to the nation? What do we need to know in terms of testing the pandemic? What message would you have at this time?
1: I mean, I'm going to sound like a broken record and not uh, very creative here, but really we need a strategy. We need a national strategy now, like really quick because, um, we are not doing enough to uh to 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 think before we act and that is taking a toll on everyone the chaos and the in this in this sort of chaotic and reactive environment it's also very easy to lose sight of things that are important like disparities it's very easy for things to fall through the cracks so as long as we don't have a national strategy, uh, it's going to be very difficult for you know for folks like me and the health data community to sort of figure out how to think about um, about data quality, data integrity, because it's a moving target. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the best that we'll be able to do is to you know is to try to you know go on Twitter or you know or talk to you know talk to to, to reporters and 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 say hey like just don't run with this yet because the data is not quite there to actually support it. Um, and, um, and we'll be, con- you know, we'll continue to, sh- you know, to chase ourselves that way. So m- my take home point is, uh, is speak up for, you know, for, uh, f- you know, for a coordinated response. We need a coordinated response. The sooner we can start thinking uh, as a country, as a state, as a, Uh, community and and actually go backwards and think about how our community is part of a state, is part of a country, uh, the sooner that we can all go back to work, go back to doing the things that we love.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you. And so how can our listeners find out more about you, find out more about Coders Against COVID, and um, what social media links would you like to share? (laughs)
1: Sure. So um, like I mentioned before, if, you know, if they just go to findcovidtesting.com and they, uh, if they notice something that we're missing, we, we, we want to, to make that better. And that's, uh, you know, it's a hundred percent volunteer run, hundred percent free. It will always be free. Um, And it's really meant to, to serve, uh, you know, communities. So uh, you're helping your neighbor in, uh, in, in helping us keep that, uh, uh, that data set evergreen. Uh, beyond that, I mean, people are welcome to uh, to follow me on Twitter at uh, and my handle is at data driven md uh, and um, and codersagainstcovid.org. Uh, But at the end of the day, I, you know, I would prefer that folks uh, really focus on what they can do for their own communities and um, and going on findcovidtesting and uh, submitting new sites or or helping us uh, submit updates. Um, is the best way to do that.
0: Mm -hmm. Thanks so much, Dr. Jorge. Uh, So find COVID testing, yeah, findcovidtesting.com is the website that you can access uh, testing information and um, your feedback is welcome. So thank you so much for joining us today on this episode. There's so much more that I'm sure we would be able to talk about in terms of data quality and so on. I,
1: I warned you before I didn't <laughs> record. I ramble on and on. That's so I apologize you. for going over.
0: There's a lot to, to discuss, but um, maybe for a future episode. But uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And um, yeah, I appreciate thank it. Thank you very much for
1: having me. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah.
0: So, you probably are aware by now that we use Anchor.fm here on this podcast for COVID 19 PPC. And I wanted to tell you about Anchor.fm because this is actually the second uh, podcast hosting software I've used. And um, I really like it. I love how easy it is to use. I love the fact that it's free. And they have so many tools here, like music and all these different options that help you record and edit your podcast either from your phone or your PC or your computer. And then Anchor distributes your podcast for you so that it can be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And then also you can even make money from your podcast with, minimum, with no minimum listenership. And it's all you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're new to podcasting and you're interested in um, getting started, I recommend Anchor.fm. So what you can do is download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Um, that's my recommendation. And um, you know, after almost a year of podcasting, I'm really glad I found Anchor just recently. It just makes things so much easier. And uh, yeah, come check out anchor.fm. hope you enjoyed this episode if you have any questions any burning questions about covid19 feel free to send me a message in anchor anchor.fm slash covid19 ppc is our website and until next time stay well and take good care out there